www.ncpe.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are a first time listener for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's an, a passage you've been studying or an issue that you're facing in your personal church ministry or home life that you'd like biblical help or counsel on. By God's grace, we'll do the best that we can to help you and to direct you to his word. If you have a question, again, locally, the number is 843-525-1859. For those live streaming through the internet, you can use the toll-free number if you choose. It's 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. Or you can just uh, email us here directly into the studio and it will pop up on the screen. The email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. When you call, you can dictate your question or if you're more comfortable, you can go on the air live. We always appreciate live callers and uh, so we can get clarification on your question if it's not clear. So let's go ahead and we'll get started, Rick. And uh, what do we have to begin with? Well, we've got a couple left over from last week, so let's get to them. First, okay. uh, this person writes, should a person be a member of a Bible-believing church in their community to support that church? Or is it okay to be a member of a church that could be 40 miles or so away from the community? Also, is it scriptural to attend special events at a different Bible-believing church than the one you attend? Well, those are good questions. You know, a lot depends, obviously, on the community that you're in. There are a lot of believers who uh, go to different parts of the country. I know because we have uh, a large contingency of Marines who um, we lose maybe two to 250 of those a year when their families uh, lift up from uh, Beaufort County and go to another part of the nation and very often uh, they have come to Christ here, or maybe some of them, they knew the Lord, but they, for the first time, were in a church that actually talked the Bible. And one of their great frustrations sometimes is they leave, and it's hard to find a Bible-believing church, some churches that even have the gospel. So if you're in a community where there is not a solid church, and by solid, I mean on the fundamentals of the faith, there's compromise. You can't... Uh, differ with someone on issues like the doctrine of the Trinity, the virgin conception, the substitutionary atonement, the infallibility of the word and so forth. And so if you're facing issues like that, then you might have to travel. I uh, was speaking with one gentleman and there was a cooperative Baptist church in his town and that was about the only choice. Well, they deny biblical infallibility. Uh, There was cooperative Baptist churches uh, in South Carolina that are now allowing homosexuals into their membership and into leadership positions. Uh, That's just absolute, absolute uh, heresy. And so obviously that's not a good church to be involved in, though they may say Baptist and in the traditional sense, you know, they uh, 
hold to a lot of things, but a lot of things mixed with error. So uh, there are some non-negotiables. And so if you have to travel 40 miles to go to church because there's nothing close, then that's what you do. Uh, it's the Lord's day all day. It may not be convenient for you. Of course, we live in Beaufort County that is really spread out. And so we have people say that come from Fripp Island. It takes them 50 minutes to get to church here at Community Bible Church. One of the reasons we have a satellite campus that live streams to the Beaufort Hilton Head uh, areas, we had some people who were driving an hour to come to church. And it is difficult to reach your next door neighbor if you're driving an hour, though amazingly people were still coming to Christ. Uh, you know, God is big and he works in the hearts of people and he brings people sometimes even through the worst and less than ideal circumstances. Uh, no, it's not wrong to go to another church for some uh, activity they have, unless you're, you know, giving up a responsibility or a commitment that you've made uh, your principal fellowship. You should be there on Sunday morning. But, you know, for instance, we have events that we invite other churches to participate in, not to steal sheep, but to to be able to allow those churches to outreach with their men. For instance, we have our men's wildlife supper and we invited about 40 pastors one day for lunch and said, look, guys, we're going to spend a lot of money. And if you want to use this event, uh, use it, please. Tim Tebow is coming. So, you know, invite your men, friends, and you follow them up. We're not going to, you do it. So th those are good things when churches uh, cooperate and work together uh, to further the cause of Christ. Anyway, that's a great question. All right, very good. Um, the next question we have is uh, from an individual who would like to know, are there scriptural reasons for a Christian couple to separate? The wife and a child are being abused emotionally and verbally by an alcoholic husband uh, slash father, and uh, she has no interest in divorcing but wants to protect her child. The wife has gone to counseling, but the husband will not go. What should she do? Well, sometimes uh, separation can be a red line in the sand where you approach your husband and say, look, husband, you know, you're abusing us. You're you've got a huge alcohol problem here and you need to get help. And if you don't get help, then we're not going to stay under the same roof with you. Now, that's not the same as divorcing someone. You'd never want to pursue something that God hates. I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. That's what he said. He couldn't have said it more plainly than he did in Malachi 2.16. Uh, but with that said, there are occasions sometimes where a woman, occasionally even a husband, who's being physically abused. Uh, I mean, it's not often when you have a wife beater, but it happens. It's usually the husband who's the husband beater and he, he rails on his wife physically or sometimes he abuses alcohol or maybe there's other women that have been brought into the marriage bed. And uh, those are terrible, hurtful things. So Paul gives us some instructions. So let me read what he says. Um, this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He writes to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her she must not send her husband away. 
for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, I read longer than what the question addresses that has been written in here, because I want you to see the parallel between, really not just the parallel, but also the contrast between uh, two statements that the apostle makes. In 1 Corinthians seven ten. he says, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. But then a few verses later in verse 12, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So on the one hand, understand he is saying, what I'm about to say to you, it's not coming originally from me, but from the Lord. In other words, this is something that Jesus addressed. But when you get to verse 12, when he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. There he's saying, this is not a topic that the Lord Jesus addressed, but I am going to address it with the same authority. Why? Because he's writing under the inspiration of the spirit of God and he's God's apostle. So let's take the question at hand. You have a, a situation where a woman is being abused emotionally and the husband has a huge alcohol problem and you feel like uh, it's very hurtful both to you as a woman and to your, your little baby. Well, there the instructions would be to the married. I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Where did Jesus say that? Where did the Lord Jesus say the wife should not leave her husband? Where did he teach that? Well, he taught it in reference to his teaching on divorce and remarriage. And the word here for leave is depart from. In fact, interestingly, the second word that is uh, rendered divorce that she should not, that the husband should not divorce his wife. It's the same word. He should not leave his wife uh, for clarity, though it is an interpretive issue. They've changed it to the word divorce, but it's still, it's the same thought. So in other words, Jesus taught that a man and a woman's relationship should only be severed by death. And so, of course, um, unfortunately, Paige Patterson recently got into some trouble in the Southern Baptist Convention to some counsel that he gave when he was 22 years old as a young pastor. And he's like 75 now and someone's dragging it up. I mean, it's really sad what's happening there. Um, Paige was used in a great way by God to uh, protect uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and people are railing on a man who helped save a convention that would have lost over a billion dollars in assets. But lay that aside, uh, there are times when a woman needs for her own protection or for the protection of her children to leave. And Paul recognizes that and he's not contradicting what Jesus said. In fact, what he's saying is totally consistent with what the Lord taught on the subject of marriage and divorce. He said, if a man leaves his wife or divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. If someone marries someone who's divorced from her husband, she commits adultery and so forth. So this is totally consistent with what Jesus taught. And so in verse 11, he says, if she does leave, why would she leave? Well, maybe her husband is a habitual adulterer and she has to protect her body and her home and the testimony and exposure of her children. Uh, Maybe the man is drinking away the paycheck. Maybe he is abusive to the children. If she does leave, what are her options? She must remain unmarried. Why? Because Jesus made it very clear that if you divorce and you marry another, you commit adultery. She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the shoes on the other foot, he gives the same counsel. 
So when you draw that line in the sand, sometimes that's what it will take for that husband that you're describing to actually know that you mean business and to get help. So you draw the red line in the sand. You have to be prepared to do it, obviously. Uh, There can be consequences if you're a mom and you're staying at home and raising your little baby uh, and all of a sudden you're without funds. Maybe there's some alternatives, uh, a family member you can go see or live with for a period of time. Um, Obviously, God's ideal is for the mother to be at home with that child and to raise that child. But sometimes there are extenuating circumstances where you can't meet the ideal because your husband is not functioning in the role that God has given him. So think your way through it. Get some good biblical counsel. Make sure you've given your husband every possible opportunity to respond, but let him know that there is a red line in the sand. And then you can say to him, husband, look, I don't want to divorce you. That would be wrong. But I want you to change your behavior and until you're willing to get some help and to get some counsel and to make some real changes in your life, then I'm not going to be living under the same roof with you. And that's where you begin. And, and if you need to even get legal protection from a judge where you say, look, my husband comes home, he's abusive, he's a drunk. Um, and I'm afraid for our children and the judge might qualify, uh, visiting rights with that child. And again, you're, you're really ringing his bell at that point. You're getting his attention and that's what he needs. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and a listener knows that, that we should trust in God for the number of children he gives us. However, her husband thinks they've got enough children. So he is getting a vasectomy. She's been praying about this, but he seems to be determined to go through with it. Is there something she should say, or should she just be obedient and let him have this procedure done? Well, it's a a good question that you ask, and usually what's happening in our day is people, even evangelical believers, don't want to have children. Uh, We have a low view of children in our day. We don't really see them the way God describes them in by the psalmist and then really a number of passages. But I I love Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. They're companion Psalms and uh, they speak highly of children. Of course, he begins by saying, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. And then in verse three, he says, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, he says in the companion Psalm. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. And your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house and your children like all of plants around your table. You know, there was a time when in America, Christians really saw children as a blessing, but they don't any longer. Now we see other aspects of life as being blessings from the hand of God. We say, Lord, thank you for the good health you've given me. Most Christians don't reach a point where they say, God, you've just given me too much good health. Will you stop it? Or we see the material blessings that God has given us. Most Christians don't reach a point where they say, God, you know, you're just blessing me too much material. Just stop it. I've had enough. But we do that with children. Oh, we have two. I don't want any more. 
Well, you should let God really lead in that whole process. And obviously there is a way in which uh, a couple can seek God in his direction in this realm. I think there's a much overlooked passage in 1 Corinthians 7, where again, when you come to 7-1, concerning about the things which you wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So in 7-1, it's really kind of a hinge verse in the book of 1 Corinthians about the things you wrote me. And so beginning in 7-1, really through the rest of the book, Paul begins to tick off the various questions that they asked him about, and he addresses them one by one. And one of the issues they were facing due to the increased persecution that was happening in the Roman Empire is, well, maybe we shouldn't give our daughters to a man Uh, to be married because if he dies through persecution, she's going to be left without someone to provide for their home. And so Paul says, look, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, And he will expound on that a little bit later. He will say in verse eight to the married, I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, what was Paul? He was single. There are some people that God gifts with the ability to be single their whole life and they're not weird. They're not homosexual or anything like that. They are just gifted in a way where they do not need a wife uh, to be fulfilled or a husband to be fulfilled in this life. And God has a special purpose for them. Uh, Paul says that a man who's married will have trouble in this life. Uh, That, that, I usually read when I marry a couple, I want them to recognize that when two people uh, come together, that they in, in the most sacred, the most um, unified, the most uh, closest of all relationships, you're bringing two sinners together. And so with that, he reminds them that they'll have trouble. Why? Because there's real adjustments when you get married. But with that said, unless someone has been gifted by God to be single, that they might offer what Paul calls undistracted devotion to the kingdom, then the norm is for someone to be married. Being single is not a spiritual gift. It's not something that God gives to you at conversion. It's not so, so much something God gives to you. It's something that God does um, in your body. He gives some people the ability in light of the sexual drive that he has equipped them with, that they don't need to fulfill it in a marriage relationship. So with that said, um, he reminds couples of their need to fulfill the conjugal responsibilities with one another. And he also reminds them that by agreement for a time, they can come apart. And so I tell some couples, you know, we have five children, they say, and we're not sure if we should have a six. Well, by agreement, come apart. There's only about four or five days out of an entire month where a woman can become pregnant. And if you so choose to come apart for that period of time, then you can let God direct 
your um, home and the number of children that he gives you. God can certainly overrule if he so chooses. But I think that we live in a day where we are in that control seat and we determine how many children we want to have. And we don't really consult God and we don't look to him. And that's not good. Now, people fear, well, if I, you know, just have as many children as I can, then, you know, I'll have 50 of them. I doubt it. Um, I, I grew up in a church, the Roman Catholic Church, where there was no birth control. And uh, most families only had anywhere from four to eight children. The Versalos had nine. They were kind of the exception. The Massarellis had uh, 10. Uh, my parents had eight. And I'm glad for all eight that they had. Uh, but there comes a point, you know, when a woman reaches 28 years of age, her fertility begins to drop and it declines from there on out. And so you won't have unlimited babies, but you can also come apart by agreement. And that's important by agreement. Again, because of the counsel that he just gave in the prior verses where you can seek God and let God really determine this. Now your husband is making a decision. It doesn't sound like he has your ear and that's unfortunate. And so I would encourage you to possibly ask him to uh, call a, a wise pastor or uh, some Christian brother, because potentially what he will do is embitter you as a wife. And that's not a good thing. There are some women sometimes who want more children because God has given them that nesting instinct and a husband sometimes can rob a woman of that possibility. There are some couples who can't have children. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, a couple who won't have children and there's a big, big difference. So uh, you can't control him any more than in one sense he can control you. But still, uh, it's important that uh, you get together as a couple and try to be unified in this decision. I, I think it's a travesty for a man to have a vasectomy. I'm just you know, telling you what I think. He's, he's really rejecting what God created him uh, to be. And he is uh, denying the, uh, through medical means, um, how God has created him to, to have children and to be um, the one who helps provide life. And that's unfortunate. That's, that's just the world's thinking that's entered into your home. Anyway, that's a great question. I appreciate you asking it. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line. And uh, the next listener would like to know, what books or sermons would you recommend on the problem of evil? Well, uh, that's a good question. I, I have a sermon on that if you want to listen to it. It's in my First Peter series, and I'm just turning over here to First Peter. I think it would be um, First Peter 4. My guess is I probably divided it starting around verse 12. So go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, click under resources, scripture, type First Peter, and there should be a sermon on First Peter four, I think around verses twelve through nineteen. And there I deal with uh, the different kinds of suffering that people experience. And there are really three kinds of suffering, uh, three reasons for for pain, for evil, uh, for heartache in the world. There's what we call common suffering, which everyone experiences just as a member of the human race. 
Uh, yesterday, there was a volcano that blew in Guadalajara. Where was it? Guatemala. 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 And, um, you know, it was like 15,000 feet into the air, and people were covered in ash and hot lava. And I don't know, last night when I went to bed, like 67 were dead. The hundreds are missing. A lot of people in the thousands are injured. Uh, that's because we live in a fallen world. And some of those things can't be prevented. Some can be, but some cannot. Uh, that's what we call common suffering. Sometimes good godly people get cancer and have heart attacks, though they do everything in the world to take care of themselves. That's common suffering. We live in a fallen world. There is what we call carnal suffering. And carnal suffering is the kind of suffering that comes upon you because of either your own sin or the sin of another person. So uh, um, a woman is unfaithful and she contracts some sexually transmitted disease or a husband is unfaithful and he contracts some sexually transmitted disease and then he sleeps with his wife and she has some disease that she has to live with for the rest of her life or he has to live with. That's carnal suffering. That's because of your sin or someone else's sin. Uh, there's a uh, carnal discipline that God speaks of in first Corinthians 11 and verse 30, where you had some believers who came to the Lord's supper, which is a reminder that we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And though they were holding in their hands and ingesting in their mouths, the very elements that were a reminder of that truth that we've been bought with a price and we're to glorify God in their body. They did it anyway. And they didn't examine themselves and repent of known sin and really, that's the warning that Paul gives that a man drinks condemnation to himself. The old King James says damnation, which is um, not used in the new King James. And it's led some to believe that this is a warning of unbelievers participating in the Lord's Supper. But it's not. The warning contextually is given to believers. And he said, for this reason, for what reason? Because some didn't examine themselves and really deal with the issues of the heart. Some of you are weak. Some of you are sick. And some of you are asleep. That is, you, you've died sooner than God wanted you to. That's carnal discipline. That's uh, pain and suffering that comes in the life because of choices that we've made. And God spanks us. Um, then there, so there's a uh, common suffering, there's carnal suffering. And the third kind is what we would call Christian suffering And Christian suffering is the kind of suffering that you know, because you name the name of Christ. We've been studying the revelation and there's coming a time in the future of man where there's going to going to be an expression of persecution. Like the world has never seen before as bad as some of God's saints are suffering this morning. I've been in dialogue with some of the uh, brothers and sisters in India that I've built relationships with. And one pastor in New Delhi who com communicates with me on a fairly regular basis. And, you know, every Sunday he has to have uh, police at his door. In fact, his, his church needs to be guarded now 24 seven. Why? Because the uh, Muslims are burning down churches the Hindus are beating pastors across India. I was uh, supposed to go um, in the fall to India to do a pastor's conference. And they said, pastor, you just need to wait. We, we want you to come, uh, but we don't want you to come now because it will just cause um, too much havoc. It will create 
a visible meeting of pastors that is only going to increase the persecution. So wisdom would dictate, let's wait until 2019. And I said, look, I'm just here to serve you whatever you want. So there's things that go on every day. Well, there's a future time when God's people are going to be beheaded. That's what we call Christian suffering. So that sermon might be useful to you. A book that comes to mind uh, would be, of course, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. He wrote that, I think, in the 1940s. Uh, Lewis is kind of a controversial guy. Um, he, he's, he was a believer. And I'm, I'm not saying that. He was an apologist of sorts. His classic work was mere Christianity. But he said some really bad things, too. Uh, he was what I consider, in some respects, incredibly bright and intelligent uh, baby Christian. Uh, he, he only grew so much in the church that he was in. Uh, the Church of England was not known for good, solid, expositional preaching. And so because of that, uh, I don't think he grew nearly as much as he might have and said some things that just were not true and correct. But with that said, that doesn't dismiss the work that he did mere Christianity or for that matter, the problem of pain. Of course, one of the issues he addresses in the problem of pain, probably one of the most quoted, <laughs> excuse me, texts in the whole book is that God shouts to us like through a megaphone in, a, in our pain. Uh, he, he, and so it, pain is a, a, can be a good thing that God can use for his glory. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's uh, Bible line, and uh, Neil from Texas writes, in Daniel, in the chapter about his three men who were thrown into the furnace, the Catholic uh, NAB has a lot of extra stuff like long prayers and praises in the furnace and a cool breeze from the angel of the Lord that protected them. It sounds pretty good. How do we know it shouldn't be in there? Why were those parts taken out in the Protestant Bibles? I'm assuming the Protestant Bibles are correct. By the way, why are the NASB and the NAB right next to each other in the Christian bookstores now that they are all pretty much having started selling Catholic stuff in addition to the original Bible-believing stuff? Do more Catholics accidentally buy NASBs or do more Protestants accidentally buy NABs? Well, I don't know. I can't answer that in terms of uh, I haven't done any market research on it. But it, uh, why are they next to each other? Because they're, they're sold alphabetically. And so sometimes when you go into a Christian bookstore, we'll have a wide variety of, of different translations. And we have a unique problem here in the States. There's actually over 250 different English translations that have been done, uh, about 15 of them that are somewhat popular. And they usually put out on the shelf those that are being sold and marketed aggressively because they're they have to make a living they've got to pay the rent to the mall or wherever they're at uh, the nab is the new american bible that's the roman catholic uh, translation that's done on the Douay rames uh latin vulgate uh translation of the bible the nasb of course is the new american standard bible it came from the asv of 1901 the american standard version then it was updated in the uh, 70s, the New American Standard, and um, several times since then. Now, it is true you raise an interesting question. It's been a long time since I've read um, those additional verses in Daniel 3. Rick, can you, can you do me a favor? Just um, you're on a computer there and type in... Um, 
the, the prayer of Azariah or the song of Azariah and see if it will bring up for you those verses. There, there's basically about 50 verses that are additional in Daniel chapter three in the Catholic Bible. Uh, we, we know um, uh, that they were not part of the original. They were a song. Well, yeah, there it is. Song of the three young men. Click on that, Rick, if you will. And uh, it should bring up those verses. Now, most of the verses are pretty harmless. Like a lot of hymns that we sing, uh, you mentioned a cool breeze. I don't remember that. I don't think, I don't think you're actually quoting that correctly um, in terms of that statement being made in it. Like I say, it's been a while since I've read that prayer, but that's, um, it's really a song of sorts. Some would call it a canical. Uh, we, we sang on Sunday before the throne of God above really rich hymn. Uh, some of the new hymns that have come out by sovereign grace and uh, the Gettys and a few others are just solid, good 21st century biblical hymns. With that said, um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't sing them because they weren't inspired by God. Uh, so yeah, there it is, Rick. Um, so uh, it's not exactly here as it is in uh, scroll down if you would and keep going towards the end of it because the first, the first of the verses are pretty generic. Here you go. Verse 29, go, 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 go. And go, um, if I remember, there's like 50 verses in it and okay, stop right around there. Yeah. Um, uh, Rick's brought it up here on a computer screen for me. Bless the Lord, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael. Those are their three Hebrew names. Unfortunately, most Christians know their three pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. But uh, it's Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. Sing praise to him and highly exalted him forever. For he has rescued us from Hades and saved us from the hand of death and delivered us from the midst of the burning furnace, from the midst of the fire. He has delivered us. So it doesn't say anything about things being cool or an angel sending a cool breeze. But throughout these 50 verses, most of it is blessed is the Lord because, you know, he does this for us and blessed is the Lord because he does this for us and blessed is this because God does this for us. And we have some other Psalms like that. And so obviously what happened was there was some Christian musician who decided to write a song based on uh, Daniel chapter three where Daniel's three friends are supernaturally protected by God there when Nebuchadnezzar throws them into the furnace of fire. Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, and there is really no bad theology in it. The question is, is it part of the original? And the answer is no, it's not in any Hebrew manuscripts, never has been. It's not part of the Hebrew Bible. When it was written is debatable. More than likely it was written, uh, during the time the Septuagint was formed and someone decided to put it in the Septuagint. So it's in the Septuagint, a Greek translation. Why would they put it there? Well, well, if you're studying Daniel three, here's a song you can sing, but did they view it as scripture? No. So there came a time where the Roman Catholics took some of the works that were done between the two Testaments, between the last prophet of the old Testament, who's Malachi 
And the first book that was penned in the New Testament in Matthew comes in order chronologically. There was a period of approximately 400 years. And there were some works, some songs, some things that were done during that time, which the Roman Catholics later adopted as scripture. What's interesting is in a place called Qumran, I was there just a few weeks ago. We took a group to Israel. And by the way, if you're interested, God willing, we will go again in September of 2019. But we went to a place, of course, where the Essenes, a group of Jewish men, uh, took the scriptures and hid them in clay pots. And of course, in the late 1940s, there was a shepherd boy out herding sheep in that area. And, you know, people are bored or whatever, and they're shooting rocks. And let me see if I can get that rock to, to in that cave over there. And he was aiming and then he heard something break and he thought, what was that? And he went into the cave and he found a pot. And of course, in that section of Israel, it's extremely hot and very, very dry, almost zero humidity. And because of that, these scrolls that basically were older by a thousand years than anything we had had prior to that had been preserved and they were a great asset to both Jewish and Christian scholars for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, there are some people who say, well, the Bible's been translated so many times that it just doesn't even reflect the original and they try to make an argument like the game telephone. No, God preserved the scriptures. So prior to that, we had Hebrew manuscripts that were done by the Masoretes around 900 AD. And those were the oldest Hebrew manuscripts we had. But there they found, for instance, in Qumran, a complete copy of the book of Daniel that went back to 200 years before Christ. They found a complete copy of the book of Isaiah they found all these Old Testament works and what it did is it showed the actual precision in which the scriptures have been copied for centuries and how God protected his word. Was these 50 additional verses that are found in the Roman Catholic Bible found in that document uh, done, um, copied by the Essenes? And the answer was no, it wasn't. Why? Because it wasn't part of the original Hebrew manuscripts. In fact, if you go to your Roman Catholic Bible, if you have one, there's not 12 chapters as in the Hebrew Bible, there is actually 14 chapters. So the 13th chapter is um, Susanna and the two elders. And there's this woman, Susanna, and there's these two old men who basically conceive a plan to want to fulfill their lusts with this lady, Susanna. And she refuses and and then this young boy Daniel who's supposed to be the Daniel in the book of Daniel comes up with a plan and she's vindicated and then there's another chapter called Bell and the Dragon and talks about Bell worship that uh, the Babylonians were engaged in and the dragon of course is a featured term to describe the devil in the Bible so sometimes it's called bell and the serpent. And in either case, those are additions. Those were not inspired by God. They don't meet the marks of canonicity. Uh, they're interesting books in the first translation of the Roman uh, of the King James Bible, the apocryphal books that were added 
onto the Catholic Bible. And by the way, this is found in the Orthodox Bible as well. So the Orthodox have these apocryphal books as well. The King James included them in the very first translation of 1611. Why? Because they shed light on that 400 year period. They were an interesting read. It helped you to understand what was happening in that 400 years. And there were some prophecies that God wrote of, for instance, in the book of Daniel in the second half of the first half of the 11th chapter that were short term prophecies, not just long term prophecies did Daniel make, but he made short term prophecies. But that's what a true prophet had to do. And some of them were fulfilled during the intertestament period. And some of those historical books record them. So they were helpful in that respect, but they were not inspired. Even in the Episcopal Church, they have uh, the 39 articles of faith. And I can't remember which article it is. It's five or, or, or six. But in one of those articles of faith, they argue that the non-canonical books uh, should be read in the church. Uh, now, I, I, I don't think that's wise. I think that's confusing. Uh, for instance, I was at a funeral once in the Episcopal Church, and they read from the Book of Wisdom. And at the end of the read, the priest said, this is the word of the Lord. And all the people almost rabbited out of habit, you know, bless the Lord or praise be to God or thanks be to God. Well, it, the Book of Wisdom is not part of the inspired canon of Scripture. And I don't think it should be read on the same level. But the Episcopalians do that. And so these are not inspired books. Uh, the additional verses, though, there's nothing heretical in those verses any more than there's heresy in some of the great hymns we sang last Sunday. They're not part of the word of God and shouldn't, in my view, be put in any Bible. But the Roman Catholics include them, not just for their historical value, but they build some doctrines out of these books. Again, they don't have the marks of canonicity. And if you are interested in uh, exploring this subject, why do we have 66 books and not 73 or 80? Or It's because of the test of canonicity. And in my uh, course on bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, I go through various tests that are implicit in identifying books that were indeed God's infallible inspired word. So this is an important issue. Um, you need to be educated on it. And again, there's a whole course on it. It's not for the weary. But Neil's question is a good one. Whether Roman Catholics are buying the NASB or Protestants are buying the NAB, I don't know. Um, but I do think you need a Bible that uh, is limited to 66 books because that's what God gave us. And in the Roman Catholics, again, like out of the book of Maccabees, they build a doctrine for praying for the dead. And so on November 1st, every year, they call it all saints day. They pray for dead people to get them out of purgatory. And again, it's one of these intertestament books that was not inspired that had some heretical doctrines in them. Unlike the song that's found in those 50 verses in Daniel three. Again, it's been a while since I've read it, but I don't remember any heresy in it at all, but it's just a song like a good hymn you sing. But some of the intertestament books and writings have absolute heresy in them. And the Jews never viewed them as inspired and neither should we. Okay. The, um, 
what is this? The Catholic uh, Bishops, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has a version that they've put out. And in verse 50 of chapter 3, that's where he got that uh, breeze. It said, uh, the angel of the Lord went down into the furnace with Azariah and his companions, drove the fiery flames out of the furnace, uh, made the inside of the furnace as though a dew-laden breeze were blowing through it. So I that, see. Yeah, that's that's obviously uh, like a paraphrase that they've created uh, because I, I have a Bible downstairs. It's based on the Douay Rheims. And so the Catholic bishops have created their own little paraphrases. So you're reading there a paraphrase and not the way. I'm, I'm, again, I'm just being fair to Roman Catholics here because the Catholic bishops in America in many ways do not represent historical Catholic doctrine. And of course, there's a number of red hats in Rome right now who are incredibly upset with the Catholic bishops in America because of some of the theology that they are teaching. And they've created some paraphrase translations that are not faithful to the Douay Reims Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. But if you actually read an older NAB Bible, that's not the NAB, that's a Catholic bishop's uh, paraphrase, you'll discover it's not written like that. So there's really nothing heretical in those 50 verses. That's heretical, what you just said, but that's not faithful Catholic doctrine. So again, there's people who even are in positions of authority. There's a number of Catholic bishops right now in America who think that Pope Francis, uh, he tends to lean right now, it appears he does anyway, by some of the statements that he has made, though he hasn't explicitly said it, but implicitly he's made some statements where he seems to favor uh, an alternative view on the gay lifestyle. Now, many think that he is just biding his time because he needs like 11 more red hats. And once he gets those 11 red hats that he will choose, if he can stay in the office for another five or six years, then he can select the kind of cardinals he wants. And then they will outvote the current conservatives and the LGBTQ lifestyle may be officially adopted at that point by the Roman Catholic Church. So if he were to speak ex cathedra right now from his chair on an issue of faith and morals, and supposedly when a pope does that, not everything a pope says is true, but when he speaks ex cathedra from the throne, from the chair, on an issue of faith and morals, then it has the same authority as the Bible. And the only way to challenge that is through the Cardinal of College, the, uh, the College of Cardinals. But he knows right now, if you were to speak ex cathedra and change the historical view that Catholics have held on homosexuality, which is an accurate view, it's a reflection of biblical truth, uh, that he would be challenged in the College of Cardinals and it wouldn't stand. But you give the guy another five or six years and he has been systematically replacing dying cardinals with liberals uh, who have a whole different way of looking at life and looking at morals. And it's coming to that, I'm afraid. But anyway, let's go to the next question. All right. Leonardo from Enfield, Connecticut writes, I'm studying the book of Revelation with you and I'm in the eighth chapter where you make a parallel with Matthew 24, verse 6, which Jesus tells them not to be frightened. If, uh, if he is talking to Christians, and I assume he is, why would they be frightened if they would uh, be in heaven at this point? 
Well, it's a good question. And the Olivet Discourse, of course, takes place on the Mount of Olives. So we call it the Mount of Olives, and we call this sermon given there the Olivet Discourse. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So understand, he's not talking about the rapture of the church. He's talking about the end of the age. So there are two distinct events that are outlined in the word of God. One is the catching up of the church. First, Christ comes for his bride. We meet him in the air. But at the end of this age, before the millennial age started, not the end of the world, but the end of the age, and there's a distinctive in, distinction in those kinds of terms that sometimes Christians loosely use. When this age ends, the millennial age uh, will begin, which will go for a thousand years. And when that millennial age ends, then we go into the eternal state. So they're asking him questions about the sign of his second coming, not the rapture and the end of the age. And then Jesus goes on and he gives a discourse. And you're right. When I taught Revelation six and uh, I went through some of the parallels as well as in Revelation eight. So Jesus speaks of false Christ. And we saw that that paralleled the first rider of the apocalypse. He comes on a white horse Um, but he's unlike the true Messiah who comes on a white horse. He's a deceiver. We saw the red horse, the second horse of the apocalypse. And Jesus spoke of wars and rumors of rumors of wars. And then we saw the third horse of the apocalypse and famines. And then the fourth horse, death and so forth. And it wasn't by accident that the parallels between Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 are identical. And then there is a trigger event in the middle of this seven-year period when the abomination of desolation takes place. And then the trumpet judgments begin to parallel some of the changes that Jesus describes all the way until the second coming of Christ. So when you think about false Christs and wars and famines and earthquakes and death and martyrs and so forth, uh, people say, well, look, we just had some disaster yesterday and a volcano blew its lid and this must mean it's the end of the world. No, those are just uh, natural occurrences that happen. Oh, well, we've got famine around the world and more and more earthquakes. We're probably better at measuring earthquakes than we were 100 years ago. They had 500 earthquakes of one sort or another on the big island of Hawaii just a couple of days ago. 500 in one day. That's pretty phenomenal. We just have ways of measuring earthquakes that we did not have prior to that. What Jesus is describing by the birth pangs don't happen until the first half of the great of the tribulation period. So in the first three and a half years, there'll be an increase in false messiahs, wars, famines, earthquakes, etc. And then there will be a mid event, the abomination of desolation. And that's when the world in essence goes into full labor as you begin to see the trumpet and bull judgments. So with that said, Jesus is addressing people who are going to be reading Matthew chapter 24, who are going to be living at the end of this current age. And there's going to be Jewish people who are going to be pouring over the scriptures. There's going to be 144,000 Jews who are going to be preaching the scriptures. And they're going to have the attention of a lot of folks. And when they do, 
uh, Jesus said, look, don't be afraid when you see these things happen. They have to happen. They're just uh, just like when a pregnancy uh, begins and then a woman goes into to labor. Uh, look out. Now, I think we're based on the signs of the times that, you know, the pregnancy is about full and labor is ready to break. But it won't start until the church is raptured. But when you look around and you see the prophetic, there are no signs for the rapture. Understand that there's never been any prophecies ever needed to be fulfilled for the rapture. There is all kinds of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the second coming to happen. And that's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 24. The rapture is not in Matthew 24. It's all in reference to the second coming. And that's important to know. But when you see in your lifetime, prophecy being fulfilled for the second coming, you know, the rapture that precedes the second coming is that much closer. And that's the amazing thing is we're seeing things happen in our day that are setting the stage for this final seven years when the world goes into labor and it begins uh, small and it gets more and more and more intense. Like a woman in labor, the birth pangs increase in timing and they increase in intensity. And that's what's going to happen in that seven year period. It's like a rheostat being turned up. Okay, very good. We've got about uh, two minutes left. Did you want to address anything about the... uh Upcoming uh, intro to, uh, or rather, home education. Yeah, so we have um, on Thursday night the introduction to the home education seminar. We hold this just once a year, and this is for people who are not home educating, who are considering it. They they want to look at other options other than the government school system, or maybe even the Christian school, or or some secular private school. And they're thinking, can we home educate our children? So this is a very important seminar. It will be Thursday evening at 630. You can call Community Bible Church at 843-525-0089. And you can register over the phone or you can go online and register either way. Uh, If you are also interested tomorrow evening at Community Bible Church, we will continue our course on biblical parenting. Right now, we're in that section of the course that deals with the role of a father. What does a biblical dad look like? What's he supposed to do? What are his responsibilities in the home? Uh, How do I know I'm doing it right? Well, you don't have to wonder. God has given us a plumb line that we can evaluate our fathering by, and he can meet us right where we're at so that we can be successful because he wants us to be successful dads. So that's uh, tomorrow night at Community Bible Church, Biblical parenting and then Thursday night at Community Bible Church will be the introduction to the home education seminar this coming Thursday. Anyway, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for this hour for Search the Scriptures and God willing, we'll be back next Tuesday. 